what to do with three boys. Well, I had a head full of hair before I had them. <laughs> I'm grateful to be with you tonight, to be able to study together uh, from the scriptures together and to reason together uh, concerning who God is. So um, <clears throat> I was thinking uh, when we talked about um, what the subject matter would be and was kind of open-ended, uh, the but the basic premise was anything that could help us walk closer to Jesus or to God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit would be something that we wanted to study together. And so um, <clears throat> for me, that's never really a far journey uh, because there's one place that I go um, that makes me feel incredibly small but makes me feel as safe as I've ever felt in my life. And that is to the very character of God himself. Um, our view of God, I feel comfortable in saying this, our view of God is too small. Even as it grows, it will always be smaller than it actually could be. God is an incomprehensible being. That doesn't mean He can't be understood. It means that you and I will never fully wrap our arms around God because if we could do that, if we could fully fathom everything about Him, we would be superior to Him. And so the vastness of who he is. And so when we think about the attributes of God, they have classically been uh, divided into two sections. There have been what are known as the communicable attributes of God. Okay, You think about a communicable illness. You can catch it. You can pass it from one person to the next. And so with God, there are attributes that he has that are communicable. That is, he can share them with his creation to a lesser degree. Okay? For an example, the ability to love. He can show us and share that with us, but we will never be able to love to the degree that He can. So that, that attribute is communicable. But then there are attributes that are incommunicable. And that's obviously pretty simple when you look at the Word. It cannot be communicated. It cannot be passed because it's a sole characteristic of divinity. And the subject I want us to talk about tonight is one of those characteristics, and it has been described, I believe, correctly, as if you looked at the characteristics of God, every other characteristic of God actually hinges on this one. And that is what technically is known as his aseity. Okay? Now the reason why I'm referencing to it as his aseity, especially in... Um, it's PowerPoint. Okay, they're working on it. I chose aseity because that's the technical term for it, but also really because I couldn't fit self-sufficiency, which is a more common term on my slides where you could read. So, you know, it's not because I have this uh, hankering for special terms uh, and technical terms, but aseity is just a Latin term that means from himself. It talks about God's self-existence or his self-sufficiency. Now, to begin, I want to share with you a lengthy quote as we think about the attributes of God. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead, the highest science. Now science, we think of it in a more technical term of the field of science, but science in its purest form, the word itself just means knowledge. Okay? Don't restrict it. The word science, you can't restrict it to what you commonly think of as science. Science is knowledge, period. Okay? The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, nature, person, the work, doings, and the existence of the great God who he calls Father. 
There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in contemplation of divinity. It's a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. That is, a little human being, when you start contemplating God, you learn how small you are very quick. Okay? Then, other subjects we can compass and grapple with, and in them we find a a kind of self-content, and we go our way with the thought, Behold, I'm wise. I understood that. But when we come to the master of science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth, and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, we turn away with the thought that vain would man be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt, and will with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend to more humble the mind than the thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around the narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and Him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of deity. And then this final statement. And whilst humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. It brings great comfort. Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In the musing of the Father, there's a quietus for every grief. There's the influence of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. There's a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go and plunge yourself into the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in His immensity and you shall come forth from a couch of rest refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. Now what if I told you the man that wrote that statement was 20 years old when he wrote it and was not formally trained in a school? You see, when we talk about God and we talk about God's attributes and things along this line, a lot of people look back and say, look, this is not necessary for us to talk about. This is something that people and scholars are in high towers, you know, in a systematic theology class. This is what you should be talking about, but this doesn't really relate to everyday people. And here's my question. If the character of God does not relate to every Christian, then I don't really understand anything. The problem, I believe, that has developed is because we won't contemplate God in His nature. We view God as this little small thing that we can put in the corner of our lives instead of being the one who rules over every portion of our lives. We try to be, in the words of Augustine, the God of God. We tell Him where He can go and where He can't go. You know, God can tell me what to do with this, but He's not going to tell me what to do with my money. Study His immensity a little bit. You'll realize that if God is who He says He is, and He is, there is nothing that we can look at Him and say, hey, you don't get to control that. And so as we think about this, I want us to do three things. First of all, look and define a seity or self-sufficiency and then look at some descriptions in Scripture as we find them, and then talk about why it's actually soul-transforming to understand more and more who He is in His sufficiency. So first of all, there are synonyms to this term. We sometimes call it self-existent self-sufficiency 
or independence along with aseity. What it means is that, uh, more technically speaking, I'll give you this definition. It means that God is self-sufficient. It's to say that God's being and existence are not contingent on anything else in this universe. Now, to contrast that, let me show you something quite different. Which this could get into a long rabbit trail and I won't, I won't go down it right now. But do you know we use the term human being a lot, right? Being. Do you know if you wanted to squeeze that word to its firmest root, that word could never be applied to a human. Because the word being carries with it inherent the idea of self-existence and that's something only God can have. The most that a human could be is a human becoming. That's the most that a human could be is becoming. He could never truly be being because you and I are wholly dependent. Our existence depends wholly upon another. If God were to, quote, cease to exist, which I understand is logically impossible, if He were to cease to exist, we would cease to exist. Acts 17, when Paul is at Mars Hill, what does he say? Acts 17, 28, In Him we live and we move and we have our very being. Nothing exists. We are wholly dependent upon God for everything. And people say, well, I work hard and I do all these things. Listen, nobody is denying that you can do certain things. But the point is, and I always, you know, a lot of people really buff up against that idea of, well, you know, a lot of people really like the idea in America, especially that they're self-made men. Yeah, that doesn't work. You can't self-make anything. That's logically impossible, first of all. Nothing cannot create nothing. But my typical response to that is, okay, if you're a self-made man and you don't need, you depended on no one to help you to get where you are, what if God decided for the next two hours to cut off his oxygen supply to you? Oh, okay. How much would you be able to accomplish? Nothing. We are, the things that we view ourselves as doing, and there's nothing wrong with doing those things, the things that we view ourselves as doing foundationally find their roots in depending upon God Himself. Okay? So, <clears throat> as one writer put it, in the end, his aseity is the key that unlocks all the other attributes. Without it, every other attribute cannot be what it is. Now, I want to caution us because there are a couple of dangers here when we start talking about the nature of God. And the first thing is we have to understand when we say that God is self-existent, we don't mean that he's self-creating. God did not create himself. We just said a moment ago that's logically impossible. You can't get nothing, you can't get something from nothing, no matter how hard you try. Right? How many people have ever seen nothing come into something? You're not going to, no matter how much time you have. Okay? So God is not self-creating. He is simply self-existing. And people say, that's really hard to understand. You're absolutely right it is. 
But if your God is big enough, is small enough to be understood completely by a human mind, he is not big enough to be worshipped. So we need him by the very definition of who God is. Now, the second thing we need to be careful of is to understand and not communicate something. We need to understand that he did not create us because he needed us. Now, a a lot of people will will go down this road and they're certainly, they can make that argument if they'd like, I can't. But a lot of people, when when you ask the question, why did God create man? I'm just gonna tell you, I don't know. I used to think I knew, but I don't know. And the, the reasoning sometimes will go like this. It's like a husband and a wife. You know, they, they get married and then they, they get comfortable with each other and they feel like they need a child. They need something else outside of their love to, to pass that love on to another. They need to pass that on to another. Listen to that word. They need. But if God is self-sufficient, then by the very definition, he needs nothing. Okay, think with me for just a minute. Look at John chapter 17 for a second and listen to the words of Jesus in one of his final prayers on earth. We're gonna look at verse five and then at verse 24. Verse five, Jesus says, and now father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So, You have this relationship, of course, the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and in this context, the Father and the Son are in this communication. And it's saying that before the world ever existed, there was a mutual glorification that existed. Now, in verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, that they may see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So what we see is this inner Godhead relationship that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have always been from eternity past, is really the only way to describe it, have always been loving and adoring each other. And people say, well, that's why we were created, so that, you know... We could love them and they could love us. But here's the problem. How good is man at loving God? If they wanted love in perfection, if they needed love, it's always been there amongst them. The Godhead. They love one another perfectly. And so when we say that God needs something, we... In my mind, we're we're starting to walk a very dangerous line of who God is and misrepresenting his nature. I'm asking, and I'm just going to ask you to trust me here. I realize some of this seems a little technical and tedious. Believe me, it's a lot more technical and tedious. But there are implications of this that you and I take for granted, and we don't know it's rooted in this. Okay? All right. So number two, let's look at some descriptions throughout Scripture that show us the aseity or the self-sufficiency or the independence of God. The first one being Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is at the burning bush and he asks God, who will I say should send me? When they ask me, what is his name? What should I say to them? God said to Moses, 
I am who I am. Still one of the most perplexing statements. What does he mean, I am who I am? Why does he choose that? Well, he can't say he was that he was. He can't say I will be what I, I'll be in the future what I will be. Because then you run into the problems of past and future which have beginnings and ends. Am simply describes state of being. There's no beginning or end to it. Now you can take like Revelation does and you can put those three together and say the God who was and who is and who is to come and illustrate eternity that way. But if you're just going to use a single word to describe it, you have to have am. The others imply something that's disastrous. And so his very status of I am who I am or as it could be translated, I will be who I will be. I am who I am. And I am who I've always been. I'm dependent upon no one else for who I am. Number two is his sufficiency. He, he needs absolutely nothing. And we could go to a number of different places for this. But if you think about Psalm 50, when he's speaking there in verse 9, he says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all, the, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, because the world is mine and the fullness of it is mine. What is he saying? I don't need it. When you're bringing it to me, when we're bringing God something, we're not doing God a solid. We're not doing Him a favor. We're simply returning to Him what is already rightfully His. Now, in Acts chapter 17, in probably the most comprehensive sermon that was ever preached on the very nature of God Himself, the Apostle Paul said this to the intellectual elites of his day. The God who made the world, verse 24, and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything since he himself gives to mankind life and breath and everything driving this point home maybe even in the ground for you God needs nothing God needs nothing it's imperative because when we understand that our relationship with him it's going to be a beautiful expansion. And we're going to get to that here in just a second. Then number three, he is also it's illustrated in his strength. In Job 41 and verse 11, which is actually quoted in Paul's doxology in Romans 11 and verse 35, this statement as God is speaking to Job describes part of his power and self-sufficiency. He says this, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. God's asking the rhetorical question, who do I owe anything? Nobody. All right? So having gone through that, let's think number three about, I want to give three ideas as to why this matters in the next 10 minutes. Because I know that when I talk about this, it's, it's very easy to see people kind of glaze over. 
right? Well, we're in technical speak, and we're, it's really not as technical as you would think, but it, it can be. And then you go back to the old question, you know, why do I need to know this? I'm kind of of the opinion that there's nothing about God that I don't need to know. Like, if it's about God, like, I want to know it. I don't really understand the attitude of a minimalist that says, I just need to know what, I, what is absolutely essential. What does that even mean? If God is who God is, and part of loving God is knowing God, then I want to know everything about Him I can. So when it comes to these delights, the first thing that we can see based upon God's self-sufficiency is our dependence upon Him. The fact that God is not a needy God. You ever met a needy person? They always need something. What about all of the idolatry in the Old Testament that even comes forward in, uh, to modern day when you look at idolatry? What is one of the fundamental principles of idolatry? These gods need you to feed them. They need you to bring the offerings. They need this from you. They need that from you. They need. Do you know why those gods need that? Because they were made in the image of the man who created them. And as human beings, we inherently need. And so when you and I conjure up a God, we conjure up a God like us who needs things. I'm going to say very strongly, you don't want a God who needs you. You don't want him. How many people have ever been used in a situation before? Oh, yeah. Um, there was a family that was having a disagreement. I didn't know this at the beginning, but one of the kids came to me and asked me a Bible question and dumbed me. I just answered the question because I thought that's what they wanted to know. I didn't know that they, I was actually being used as a trump card between an argument of the kids and the parents. Which, you know, if they were looking for a trump card, they could have gone a lot of other places that would have been a lot better than that one. But, you know, even though I wouldn't have changed my answer, I didn't like the fact that somebody used me. Okay, so if God needs nothing from anyone, you know one thing you never have to worry about? He's never going to use you. because he doesn't need it. And so what that means, the, the idea behind that is his interest in you, his interest in me, is purely motivated by goodness. He's not in a relationship with you to see what he can get from you. He wants a relationship with you because of the depth of his love for you. There are no ulterior motives. You never have to wonder if God has your best intention at heart. Because He has no external force driving Him to be interested in you. And therefore, you can depend upon Him. And so we can hang ourselves upon 
the faithfulness of God and the character of God in his dependability and in his self-existence. And we know that we have a God. And this is something the prophets talk about all the time when they're talking about idolatry, Isaiah especially. He said, this is the craziest thing in the world. And I'm obviously summarizing. Isaiah didn't say that. But he said, you go and you cut down a tree. With half of it, you make an idol. With the other half, you build a fire so that you can melt the gold to overlay and put on the idol. And then you carry the idol and you put it in its place. He said, and you have forsaken the God of Israel who carries you when you can't walk. You've traded the God who carries you for a God you have to carry. And by the way, people do that today the same way. Idols are different, still the same. We don't have to worry if God is, in, if God is interested in us for the wrong reasons. Number two, there is a sense of security knowing that God needs nothing. First of all, the world is held together by him. In Colossians 1 and verse 17, Jesus is described as being before all things, and in him all things consist. They literally hold together. Hebrews 1 and verse 3, this whole world is held together by the word of his power. Listen, I'm not one who believes that we should trash the planet. Okay? but I'm also not one who believes that we can inherently destroy it. Because God holds it together. Why does the world hang on nothing? Because God put it there and He told it to stay. Now we can talk about all the scientific laws and different things that He created to make it stay there, but basically it's because God put it there and He told it to stay. It's held together. And so all of these, these ideas, you know, people get a little crazy when we start talking about the end of the world, which is based on huge misconceptions. But look, this world is going to end when God decides He's ready for it to end. Also, <clears throat> I can rest secure in my life because in Him I live and I move and I have my being. God upholds my life. When my life is ready to be done, it'll be done. And there's not a thing in the world I can do about it. I'm sure I could do some things to try and enhance longevity and little things along the way, but ultimately I can't do anything about it. As a lady said in one of the ladies' Bible classes I taught in my first job, she said, look, none of us are getting out of this thing alive. But this is the one above all. And that is that we are spiritually protected and guarded. We don't have to worry about the condition of our soul. We don't have to worry. When Peter said to persecuted Christians, he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
time will not allow me to go into the fullness of this discussion. But I will mention it briefly. There are two extremes about Christian assurance, and both of them are equally wrong. One extreme is that you are unconditionally, eternally secure no matter what you do. That's unconditional. It's just not accurate. The other extreme is you can never know that you're sure. You can never be sure that you're going to heaven. Neither of those are right. They're not right. Look, Jesus... (laughs) There is a sense. People say, yes, but you have to keep yourself. Look at, um, a lot of times some people will cite Jude 21 and say, keeping yourselves in the love of God. Yeah, but keep reading Jude. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. What about 1 John 1, 7 and 9, the continual walking in light and confessing of our sins and the cleansing that takes place? The same power of that self-existent being that he has to exist within himself is also at our disposal helping to protect us. So while I don't believe in eternal unconditional security, I certainly do not believe that a Christian has zero security. I just don't see that anywhere in the New Testament. Number three, I can know that eternal life is not a trick. You know, if somebody came to you today and they said, I can offer you eternal life, you will never die. Now forget, remove Christianity from the scene. If somebody just comes to you today and they say, I can guarantee you, you never die, what would you think? You're crazy. Because what is the common human experience we all know? People die. It is an outlandish claim to say that I can give you eternal life if it comes from me. But if God is self-existent, that is, He exists on His own, no outside force, and He will never cease to exist. When He promises me that I can have eternal life, it's not some pie-in-the-sky reality or wish or dream. It is reality. It is based in who He is. If eternal life is not real, God is not real. So when we look at at some of these things that we believe and, and as Christians we hold dear, like the hope of eternal life, the hope of heaven, security, some of these things. What we need to remember is that those things have deep, deep roots. And one of the things that I have found is that the more I study, no matter what subject it is, if I keep following it, if I keep going down with it, okay, or to use, let's just use a different direction. C.S. Lewis once described this. He said, I, gotta, I would go out and have prayer in my shed every morning. And I noticed one day when I was out there praying, there was a light beam that had come through two old slats in it. And he said, so I'm sitting here praying and I'm looking at it and I start looking and tracing the beam where it's getting in because it obviously shows I got 
It can get in. Some other stuff can get in. So he said, I'm tracing the line of it. He said, but you have to trace that beam all the way to its source. And that's the problem with many people's understanding. They look at some of the things the Bible promises and says, and they never trace that beam to its source. And therefore, their beliefs are never truly rooted. And their lives never really see transformation because they don't understand the God who made those promises. And that my faith is not a crutch. It's not something that I choose because I can't live in the world without it. It's based upon the surest reality in all of this world. In the reasoning and the character of who God is. And this is just one of them. Once you start looking at the others, it gets absolutely phenomenal. And so when we look at these things, when I look at the aseity of God and I study it or try to study it or try to prepare to even talk about it, I feel about this tall and like Moses did when God showed him his glory in Exodus, when he just kind of hid in the rock. That's kind of what I feel like I need to be doing. But you know, it's interesting. I never feel more safe in my life than when I realize that God whose power is immense is toward me for good. You want to grow in your walk with God? You want to grow in your walk with Jesus? Learn about who He is. And He will... Sure, there are terrifying things. But on the other side, there are great comforting things. Thank you tonight for your kind attention.